This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Lich. A lot of the words that fill our favorite fantasy games and stories have pretty obvious origins. Mostly, they have simple historical origins, or else they're lifted wholesale from some ancient earthly myth or legend or bit of folklore and repurposed for use in the fantasy worlds of games like Dungeons and Dragons. But every so often, we come across something whose origins are a bit more mysterious. An origin that we have to reconstruct from fragmentary bits and pieces. A little bit of elemental Greek some Middle English nomenclature, a bit of Slavic folklore, and a smattering of Bible study. Mix it all in with a little bit of guesswork, and we can usually figure out how some fantasy thing came to be. That's a bit trickier, but we can do it. Usually. But sometimes it becomes clear that the reason we can't reconstruct an obvious origin story is because there is no origin story. Or rather, because the story itself is that a bunch of different people who all worked on a thing all added their own little bits and pieces of this and that. And they literally built something that seems like a classical bit of folklore or mythology out of bits and pieces. It's not an evolution of stories at all. It's the construction of something new from a bunch of ancient bits of lore. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about a creature in Dungeons and Dragons that seems like it should have some origin in ancient myth or legend, but actually doesn't. It's a creature that was invented for Dungeons and Dragons and has become part of the modern lexicon of fantasy creatures. And it was assembled from a bunch of bits and pieces gradually over the course of the last 40-odd years of gamedom. And we're talking about one of the greatest villains to disgrace the game of Dungeons and Dragons, and how he, too, was assembled from a bunch of bits and pieces gradually, with no great plan. And ironically, the creature and the villain in question are both said to come into existence in the fantasy world with the application of ancient magical lore and the secret arts of bygone ages. We're talking about the Lich. And we'll start with the most surprising thing about the Lich, the thing we've been mysteriously dancing around in the attempt to pull all of the disparate bits of research we're about to reveal into something resembling a coherent narrative. And that is the fact that the Lich is one of those monsters that was invented specifically for Dungeons and & Dragons, and it spread to all sorts of other fantasy media from there. The funny thing is that nowadays, there are websites that compare the Lich to some specific bits of legend and mythology, but as you'll see, that's because those bits of legend and mythology got tacked onto the Lich later. And so the Lich, retroactively, looks like those things. Let's start with what a Lich is in the fantasy sense, particularly the Dungeons & Dragons sense. You probably know a Lich as a very powerful undead monster. In fact, they are pretty much the most powerful of undead monsters. What happens is this. A spellcaster, usually a wizard who majored in necromancy back at Warthog's School of Wizardry, realizes his proverbial number is just about up, and he's not ready to shuffle off the mortal coil just yet. Or ever, really. So he digs up some ancient forgotten manual called Turning Yourself into an Undying Decomposing Corpse for Fun and Profit. Then he makes a little magical trinket to hide his soul in called a phylactery. After that, he drinks a poisonous potion that he made himself from unspeakable ingredients. 
the potion kills him and simultaneously reanimates his body. And so he lives forever in the form of, well, a decomposing corpse, as we mentioned. But he retains all of his memories and all of his magical powers. And with his soul anchored by means of his phylactery, if his mortal remains are ever destroyed by a group of meddlesome adventurers, he'll just grow a new one. And that's pretty much the modern understanding of the Lich. And now we're all on the same page of the Book of Vile Darkness. But here's the thing. All of that stuff got added and embellished after the first Lich was written into the first game of D&D. Literally all of it, except for two words. Corpse and Spellcaster. Way, way back in the first supplement to Dungeons and Dragons ever, the Greyhawk supplement published in 1975, where Liches were first mentioned. A Lich was just a skeletal undead monster that had been a cleric or magic user in life, and had some magical powers as a result. That was it. A lich was just a spell-casting corpse. You might wonder about the name Lich. It was a name given to the creature by, apparently, E. Gary Gygax himself. But unlike some of his other creations, he didn't just invent the name. Gygax was very well-read, and he knew a lot of old words, words like Lich alternatively spelled L-Y-C-H, or L-I-T-C-H. And you've probably heard this word yourself. After all, there are a number of towns in the world, especially in England and the United States, named Litchfield, or some variant thereof. And that's because a Litchfield was a cemetery. Because Litch was an Old English word that meant corpse or body. And other words have borne a lich at the beginning, too. For example, many old cemeteries had a lich gate. That's a roofed-over gate to a cemetery under which there's a place to set a funeral beer while you wait for the priest to show up. A beer, by the way, is one of those wooden frames with the handles that's used to carry a coffin. And because they were once believed to be omens of death, screech owls used to be called lich owls. Back in 1975, when the first lich crawled out of his grave, he was just the animate corpse of a wizard named after an old English word for corpse. Ho-hum. A few details were added in 1976 by Brian Bloom in the third supplement to D&D Eldritch Wizardry, but it mostly just explained that liches were animated by means of ancient and dark magical rituals. Except that it also presented a pair of very interesting magical artifacts a severed hand, and a decomposing eyeball. Those objects were supposedly the remains of a once-powerful ancient lich and were still imbued with some of the lich's dark magic. And they were all that was left of the lich after a battle with his own lieutenant-turned-traitor. The only thing left of the lieutenant, meanwhile, was his sword, which was also floating around the world and imbued with magical power. Oh, and the Lich had a name, Vecna, which was an anagram of Vance, the last name of author Jack Vance. And he was significant because he'd written a series of science fiction and fantasy books that had basically inspired the entire magic system in Dungeons and Dragons. You know, that thing where wizards memorize their spells and then forget them once they cast the spell? Yep, 
If you hate Vancean magic systems, as they have come to be known, you know exactly who to blame. And that was the beginning and the end of Liches, animated spellcaster corpses. And that was the beginning and the end of Vecna. Literally, just a severed hand and a disembodied eye with some magical powers left over from some ancient battle between some undead Sith Lord and his apprentice. No more detail than that was given. But then, in 1977, with the publication of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, Gary Gygax added another tiny little detail to Lichdom. In the monster manual for that particular edition, Gygax mentioned that Lichhood was an intentional state entered into by a powerful magic user using ancient magical powers, and that in order to maintain his status as a free-willed undead instead of a mindless corpse, a lich needed a phylactery. And that's obviously where the whole hiding your soul in a magical trinket like a horcrux comes from, right? Well, no. See, Gygax never mentioned that whole soul-hiding thing. In fact, he never mentioned what the phylactery was for at all, except that it was part of the magic that kept a lich liching. And he probably never meant it to be a keepsake for a soul, because again, the word phylactery is a real word. And it has a real meaning. In fact, it has two meanings. And we're not sure which meaning Gygax meant. If you get our meaning. And there's some further confusion, because we don't even know where the second meaning actually came from. But that story requires us to talk a little bit of Greek and a little bit of Hebrew. See, phylactery is an ancient Greek word, and it refers to an amulet. Specifically, it refers to an amulet in the sense of a charm worn to protect the wearer. It was meant to ward off misfortune and evil curses and stuff, but that usage is pretty old. It was archaic even in the 14th century, which is when the word phylactery started to spring up in writing again. Sure, scholars knew the old meaning. That's why we still know it today. But to lots of people, especially observant Jews, it meant something else. So let's talk about Teflon. These days, the words Teflon and phylactery are taken to be synonyms. And that seems to have come into prominence in the 14th century, as we mentioned. Teflon is actually a Hebrew word. Maybe. We'll come back to that. Teflon are a pair of small leather containers with straps on them. They are worn by members of Orthodox, or at least highly traditional, congregations of the Jewish faith. Most usually, they are worn by men. In some congregations, women wear them too. The first box is worn on the arm with the straps wound around the arm to hold the box in place. The second is worn on the forehead, above and between the eyes, with the straps wound around the head and secured. And the boxes contain four specific handwritten passages from the Torah. And the four specific passages from the Torah recorded on the parchment in the Teflon are the four passages in the Bible that relate to the Teflon tradition. There's two from the book of Exodus and two from the book of Deuteronomy. And they basically roughly say, wear these words as a mark on your arm and between your eyes. And they serve as a reminder to the faithful that God intervened to help lead the Israelites out of Egypt. 
interesting thing, though, is that the Torah passages don't refer to those things as Teflon. And there's no agreement among Jewish scholars as to where the name came from and what it means. And how the word phylactery came to be associated with the Teflon is also something of a mystery. But it seems to have been adopted by medieval Jewish scholars like Maimonides. But we digress. The point is, Gygax's use of the phylactery could have referred to a protective amulet or to some sort of reliquary. But that's about it. And it seems to be just a bit of flavor text attached to a monster. Just like the name Vecna was just a bit of flavor text attached to a couple of magical objects. And then, in 1979, along came someone who had no idea what a phylactery was at all. And so he ran with his own ideas. And the modern D&D lich was born. In Dragon Magazine 26, contributor Leonard Lakovka, who, by the way, contributed his own campaign setting of the Lendor Islands to Gygax's growing map of the world of Greyhawk, Len Lakovka decided to greatly expand the lore of liches. Now, Lakovka had been friends with Gary Gygax and the other folks who invented the game, and he was heavily involved in Dungeons and Dragons even though he didn't work for TSR. In addition to contributing material via Dragon Magazine, after he placed second in the first official AD&D tournament ever held at the Winter Fantasy Convention, he was invited to start writing modules for official events. But that's all another story as well. What we're talking about here is his article in 1979 called Blueprint for a Lich. And it basically added to and solidified the full definition of a lich, the one we laid out above. Wizards turn themselves into liches to avoid death, and they do so by creating a magical keepsake called a phylactery, which keeps their soul hidden away in a safe place. Now, he didn't specifically refer to the keepsake as a phylactery. But a few later books, including a D&D choose-your-own-adventure-style endless quest book called The Lair of the Lich, did explicitly make those things one and the same. And so that is why gamers these days think the word phylactery is ancient Greek for soul-hidey-hole. Now, if you know your Slavic folklore, the idea of a wizard hiding his soul away for safekeeping so he could live forever is nothing new. And a lot of folks who know their Slavic folklore think the D&D Lich was born of a particular folktale about a wizard who did just such a thing. They think the D&D Lich was a nod to Kushe, the Deathless. Obviously, with a name like that, you know exactly what he was famous for. Kushe couldn't die. But that's not all he was famous for. He was also, despite his hideousness, fond of riding naked on his magical horse all around the mountains of Russia. Oh, and he was also a shapeshifter. He could turn into a monster or even into a tornado. And he often turned into a tornado to kidnap women. Because Kushe loved the ladies, whether they returned his love or not. As for how he had become deathless, that was a little magical trick he performed when he took out his own soul with a needle. And with his soul safely hidden inside the needle, he was immortal. But Kushe was afraid the needle would get broken. So he hid the needle inside an egg. 
Then he decided that he needed to hide the egg too. So he hid the egg inside a duck. Oh, and to keep the duck safe, he put it inside a rabbit. And then he put the rabbit in an iron chest. And just to be on the safe side, he buried the chest under an oak tree on an island in the middle of nowhere. Now, if you're wondering why he hid the egg inside a duck and the duck inside a rabbit, it was because he figured that if anything went wrong and someone dug up the chest, the rabbit would jump out and run away. And if someone managed to catch and kill the rabbit, the duck would swim away. Now, there were lots of stories about Cushay and his evil ways and womanizing. And of course, they all end with Cushay's defenses all failing and someone managing to get hold of his needle soul. But that's neither here nor there. The point is, a few folks have tried to claim that Cushay the Deathless is obviously the inspiration for the D&D lich. Well, maybe it was Lakovka's inspiration. But the lich had been around for half a decade before the soul and a keepsake idea got piled on. Meanwhile, Vecna was still just a name attached to a couple of magical objects. The Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition Dungeon Master's Guide added some details to the story of the battle between the ancient lich Vecna and his lieutenant Kos, and they even suggested that Vecna's spirit might still inhabit one of the artifacts. But Vecna was still just a name and a bit of backstory for some pretty gruesome magical artifacts. And then came... Vecna Lives. Now, the world of Greyhawk, which had been originally invented as a set of catacombs under an ancient castle to playtest Dungeons and Dragons around Gary Gygax's kitchen table, had a lot of stuff published about it. But it was a lot of piecemeal stuff. In reality, it was just a sort of map into which TSR and any GM could drop any fantasy thing they wanted. Somewhere in Greyhawk was the village of Hamlet, and somewhere were the Lendor Isles. And of course, Castle Greyhawk and the city of Greyhawk were out there. And gradually, maps had been produced of the world, but it was still very piecemeal. Everything happened in its own corner of the world. That all changed when David Zeb Cook wrote Vecna Lives. This adventure module was the fourth part in a series of modules known as the WGA series, World of Greyhawk Adventures, basically. The first three were tightly connected to the previously reduced supplement that detailed the city of Greyhawk. But unlike the other modules in that series, it quickly moved beyond the city. Vecna Lives did something no other Greyhawk module had done. It spanned the world. And thus it tied the world together. The adventures in the module visited every corner of Greyhawk, many of which had been mentioned in previous products, like the Viscounty of Verbabunk in which the Temple of Elemental Evil series had taken place. And it detailed a lot of figures from Greyhawk's lore, like Morden Canaan and the Circle of Eight. And to really achieve the grand scale that Cook was looking for, he needed a grand villain. And so, he chose Vecna. The Lich, who was just a name for a magical artifact, was now an honest-to-goodness demigod returned from the dead, with an evil cult searching the world for his missing bits, and the adventure was so popular that it got two follow-ups. Vecna Reborn was published in 1998, and Die Vecna Die was published in 2000. We're not making that last title up. 
I know, Simpsons fans, it's not German for the Vecna the. So that's the story of how the Liches of Dungeons and Dragons became what they are today. Not from some old bit of ancient folklore or myth, but from a lot of details getting tacked on bit by bit, which is also how the greatest Lich of them all grew up. And nowadays, the Lich has spread far beyond Dungeons and Dragons, to all sorts of other media, even to the stars. Seriously, let's end by telling you about PSR B1257 plus 12. That, by the way, is how astrophysicists designate objects in space. The first part is an abbreviation that defines the object. PSR stands for Pulsating Radio Source. The first number, 1257, means that the object can be found at 12 hours and 57 minutes eastward along a line called the Celestial Equator. The plus 12 means it is 12 degrees above the celestial equator. Those numbers are called the right ascension and the declination. The B refers to a specific measuring system. There are several. Now, PSR B blah 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 is a pulsar. A pulsar is a type of rotating neutron star. And a neutron star is basically what's left after a mid-sized star goes supernova and blows off its outer layer into space in the most intense explosion you can imagine. What's left, the core of the star, collapses under its own gravity. And it collapses so completely that even the subatomic particles are smashed together until all that remains is one giant ball of neutrons about six miles across. No protons, no electrons, nothing else. If that neutron star happens to be rotating very fast, it basically flings electromagnetic radiation out into space like a beam of light. Or in this case, like the beam of a lighthouse. From a distance, it appears to be blinking on and off regularly. And that's why they're called pulsars. Now, this particular pulsar, PSR, etc., 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 happens to have three planets around it. And they were named PSR yada yada A, PSR da 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 B, and PSR C. But in 2014, the International Astronomical Union held a naming contest to name that pulsar, and its planets. And because a pulsar is the spinning, glowing corpse of a dead star, the winning name was Lich. In case you're interested, Lich A, Lich B, and Lich C, the planets, were named Draugr, Poltergeist, and Phobator. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>